Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War, a weekly podcast that is a read-along podcast of the Chronicles of France, England, Spain, and other adjoining places. Let's crack open the Chronicle and see where we're due to start. Last week, we spoke through Chapter 1 and got a bit of an introduction and had a look at some of the things that we might see upcoming in this initial look into the history of France and England. We're going to speak a little bit about Chapter 2 and some of the considerations that are going to go into this as we may look at this early segment of the podcast of a bit of a prequel towards the war itself. We'll be gathering a little bit of context with the first part of the Chronicle. And as discussed, that is very, very heavily taken from the Chronicles of John LaBelle with slight alterations that were made with the benefit of hindsight or further sources or perhaps occasionally just personal choice. For chapter two, we have a title, Here Speaketh the Author of Such As Were Most Valiant Knights to be made mention of in this book. We've got an idea about what we're getting ourselves into there. Let's dive right into it and see what we can find. All noble hearts, to encourage and to show them and sample and matter of honor, I, Sir John Fossar, begin to speak after the true report and relation of my master, John LaBelle, sometime canon of St. Lambert of Liege, affirming thus how that many noble persons have oft times spoke of the wars of France and England and pre-adventure, knew not justly the truth thereof, nor the true occasions of the first movings of such war, nor how the war at length continued. But now I trust ye shall hear reported the true foundation of the cause, and to the intent that I will not forget, minish, or abridge the history in anything for default of language, but rather I will multiply and increase it as near I can, following the truth from point to point in speaking and showing all the adventures, sith natively of the noble King Edward III, who reigned King of England and achieved many perilous adventures, and diverse great battles addressed other feats of arms of great prowess, sith the year of our Lord God, M-C-C-X-X-V-I. That this noble king was crowned in England, for generally such as were with him in his battles and happy fortune adventures, or with his people in his absence, ought right well to be taken and reputed for valiant and worthy of renown. And though there were great plenty of sundry personages that ought to be praised and reputed as sovereigns, yet among other and principally ought to be renowned, the noble proper person of the foresaid gentle king, also the Prince of Wales in his son, the Duke of Lancaster, Sir Reynold Lord Cobham, Sir Galtier of Manny, Knight Sir John Chandis, Sir Frank of Hale, and various other of whom is made mention hereafter in this present book because of their valiant prowess. For in all battles that they were in, most commonly they had ever renown both by land and sea according to the truth. They in all their deeds were so valiant that they ought to be reputed as sovereigns in all chivalry, yet for all that such other as were in their company ought not to be of the less value or less set by. Although in France in that time there were found many good knights, strong and well expert in feats of arms, for the realm of France was not so discomfited, but that always there were people sufficient to fight with all, and the King Philip of Valois was a right hardy and valiant knight, 
and also King John his son, Charles the King of Bohemia, the Earl of Alencon, the Earl of Foix, Sir Saintre, Sir Arnold de Andrin, Sir Bouquet, Sir Gouchard, de Angle, the Lords of Beaujeu, the father and son, and the various others, of which I cannot name their names, of whom hereafter right well shall be made mention in time and place convenient to say the truth and to maintain the same. All such as in cruel battles have been seen abiding to the discomfiture, sufficiently doing their various may well be reputed for valiant and hardy whatsoever their adventure. There's a note here by the translator in chapter 2. The king of Bohemia is called Charles by Fossard, but his name was in fact John. In this latest redaction, which is from the Vatican copy, Fossard states when relating the Battle of Crusay that he was rebaptized as Charles. This is a good point to make mention of something that we'll need to be aware of as we go through this journey together, and that is the Chronicle is a fantastic source and description of an amazing part of world history, but we can't consider it to be 100% accurate. There are aspects here which may be called into question, like this particular name. There are aspects that we are going to find are not supported by historical or any kind of archaeological evidence. And with that particular record, we have to find that we may pick one particular source over another, or we may choose to follow the archaeological record because it's quite possible that they are truer to the actual aspect of what is happening at the time. That is one of the reasons that we will be using other books to supplant our knowledge through this journey to make sure that we are trying to build as accurate a picture of the times as we can, and we're not getting carried away simply by one person's interpretation or one person's accounting. Fossard did an excellent job of attempting to speak to people who were involved in events at those times, but it's very possible that he spoke to them long after the events took place, or that the people involved had reasons to boast, or lie, or otherwise misinterpret the events, or perhaps related what somebody else had told to them, and second, third-hand stories changed somewhat. And so, we'll have to keep our eyes open as we go through things to try and make sure that we're making the best guesses that we can, and the best judgments we can, as we go through this story. In order to give you a bit of an idea about what might be happening and some context for the era, I'm going to actually pause our reading of this particular book and we're going to take a quick look at another one. So bear with me for a moment while I fetch that. All right, with the power of editing, I should have returned with a fairly good speed. And what I have in my hands now is a copy of Dennis Hayes' Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. So what we can do is we can have a quick look at Europe in the beginning of the 14th century, which is pretty well where we're going to be starting. So it will be a good quick relation to some of the aspects that we'll deal with. Some of them will be English, but Europe has an impact on all of Europe. So its relationship with England and France will still be relevant. France may need diplomatic support from some of these other countries or economic support. So understanding what kind of things go into that can help paint a picture of the general sense of what we're looking at. By the end of the 13th century, European man had not made enough progress as a civil engineer to diminish much the control exercised by physical geography over his activities and communications. The most powerful factor was still what it had been since the Iron Age. 
the division of the European continent into two physically different halves by the diagonal which runs from the Rhine Delta to the Bosphorus. To the northeast of that line lies the triangle of the Great European Plain with its apex in Belgium and its base in the Urals. Southwest of it is the hilly and mountainous triangle which includes the northern half of the Mediterranean basin with its base on the Atlantic seaboard and its apex where Europe ends and Asia begins at the Straits of Constantinople. The British Isles and the mountains of the Scandinavian peninsula lie outside this scheme. Let's have a look at the economic geography of Europe in the beginning of the 14th century. Much of 14th century Europe was still as its nature had made it. In its vast mountain forests, for the most part, remained intact. The wide grasslands of Central and Eastern Europe had not been ploughed up for agriculture or mined for minerals. Except in the Mediterranean area, the great European rivers meandered, shallow, broad, unbanked and unbridged. The wide tracts of marsh were only a few fowlers and fishermen could live. Its mineral wealth, especially that of Scandinavia, the Ukraine and Great Britain, was still largely undiscovered. The farmers and civil engineers of the Roman Empire had indeed done much in southern and western Europe to control and exploit natural resources, but during the period of the wandering nations and of the barbarian invasions, the forest and swamp had resumed much of their primeval domain. Only slowly was the age-long struggle with nature turning again to man's advantage. In southern England, in France, Germany, Bohemia, Poland, and Hungary, Farmers were still, as they had been for centuries, cutting their way into the forest, asserting it for agriculture. The Netherlands were building dikes against the sea and combining their mouths and tributaries of the Rhine Delta between dams and polders. A beginning had been made into the confinement of the Lower Thames with a bridgeable channel. Monks and municipalities were building causeways and embankments into the English fens and in the marshy estuaries of the Po and the Rhone. But this taming of the rivers was only in its beginning. The mazy channels of the Danube and the Tisa in Hungary still made a quarter of that country useless. The enormous marsh of the river Pripyat in western Russia was an obstacle to the economic and political exploitation of the no-man's land between Poland and Russia. Every stage of economic development, from primitive food gathering to capitalist production, was represented in 14th century Europe. Specialization was still far from complete. Farmers and shepherds supplemented their livelihood by hunting, fowling, and beekeeping. Craftsmen worked in fields, monks in agriculture, stock raising and pisciculture, professional soldiers by brigandage. Nevertheless, it is possible to define certain areas where one or another economic activity was predominant. In Iceland, across the coast of the North Sea, and in the southern Baltic fishing was important, the profitable herring shoals of the North Sea were still making their annual migration into the Baltic, and the people of Norway were beginning to exploit cod fishing. In an age where there was no fresh meat from the Michaelmans to Easter, and when the church strictly enjoyed the Lenten fast, fish was so valuable a commodity that landowners were making artificial lakes for fish breeding, especially in Bohemia where there were no natural lakes. For another large minority of Europeans, the chief source of livelihood was the breeding and nurture of animals. Pigs, goats, poultry, cattle, horses, and above all sheep, for there was then virtually no rival to wool as a textile except the scarcer and more costly linen. Cotton was unknown except in Sicily and the Levant. Though a little silk was already being manufactured in Naples and Tuscany, most of it had to be imported from Asia. 
Most sheep and cattle breeders, however, did not produce for the market, but merely provided themselves with clothing, meat, milk, butter, and cheese. A great many pastoralists were semi-nomadic, moving with their flocks and herds from the valleys where they wintered to summer pastures in the mountains. That's an important section there, that in Europe, a lot of people were keeping sheep for a primary reason that wool was an important textile. We're going to see that come back later in the books, because... England is one of the major producers of wool, and it's going to be very important economically to have a look at what happens when one major provider of one very important resource, in this case wool for clothes and textiles, decides that it doesn't want to play nicely with some of its neighbours. Let's resume having a quick look into some of this economic discussion. At the beginning of the 14th century, most people in Europe still grew or bred or caught their own food. Agriculture was still primitive. In Eastern Europe, the hook plough, which could do little more than scratch the lighter soils, was still almost universal. Cultivation of fields had indeed become nearly everywhere intensive, but though the farmers now tilled the same patch of cleared land year after year, they still left a third or a half of that patch fallow each year. The more economic three-field system and the heavy plough with its iron share had only reached those areas east of the Elbe where German colonists had already settled. The land was tilled by peasants who usually cultivated two or three unenclosed fields as a community, though each peasant had the right to the crops from assigned strips of land. There were also some peasant freeholders and some landless farm labourers who worked for wages. The great majority of peasants, however, paid rent for their holdings in money, produce, or services to a landlord. The landlords usually kept part of their estates as a demand to be cultivated by the serfs to supply the lord's household needs or to produce commodities which they could sell in the market. The most fundamental factor making for the increased differentiation of the two halves of Europe at this time was the decrease of demands farming in the west and the increase in the east. Intimately connected with this change was the consequent decline of serfdom in the West and its growth in the East. That's also an important section to understand that a lot of the times wealthy landowners relied on a group of serfs to actually work their land and provide rent. Obviously, when we get further into warfare, losing those communities is going to have a serious knock-on effect throughout the communities. If there's no one to work, then the landowners have no way of actually producing money for themselves. If they have no way of producing money, they're not paying taxes or buying soldiers or arms and armor for themselves, then how do they conduct a battle? How does the government function when economic breakdown occurs at the lowest and most important level? We also find that there's an increase in specialization, and we're going to jump into that quickly and have a quick discussion on that. The increase in specialization was not merely a matter of individuals devoting themselves to particular crafts. Large regions were ceasing to be self-sufficient and were specializing in the production and export of commodities for whose production they were particularly well fitted by their convenient geographical situation or by the possession of raw materials. England was beginning to realize the value of its grasslands and the sheep they nourished. German merchants in the Baltic were exploiting the wide market for fish, northwest Russia was sending furs to clothe the wealthy merchants and their wives in Western Europe. The Flemish towns had used their favorable geographical situation to become the center for the manufacture of good quality woolen textiles. I'm going to pause there because we've already looped back to something I've mentioned earlier. 
England is beginning to realize the value of its grasslands and sheep within it. And Flanders, or the Flemish towns within Flanders, had used their favorable geographic position to become the center for manufacture of good quality woolen textiles. We're going to see that relationship crop up in the story as the leaders of Flemish towns and England are going to be two players that we're going to meet a couple of times in our story. Let's have a quick look at the political scene that exists in Europe at this time. The two great empires and the two great branches of the Christian religion were bequeathed by early and central Middle Ages to later times. The Eastern Empire, based on Constantinople, was a shadow of what it had formerly been, broken by the Latins in the Fourth Crusade, but re-established again, again by Latin intervention in 1261. The power of the Paleology emperors was diminished, their lands largely under alien control. The Holy Roman Empire had lapsed for a time after the death of Frederick II. When the interrogum ended in 1273, the emperors were far less powerful than they had been both inside Germany and in the Italian lands that they nominally still ruled. Curiously enough, the Orthodox Church in Greek lands and in the Latin West, the Roman Church, were both vigorous and neither shared the debility of the empires with which they were associated. Indeed, the Roman Church had been in the large part responsible the declining authority of the German Empire. In the 13th century, fortified by the evangelism of the friars and the intellectual and artistic achievement of the great architects and university-trained philosophers and theologians, it had reached the height of its public influence. Popes had been successful in curbing the power of the emperors, especially in Italy. They had done less to contain the ambitions of king in France, in England, and in the kingdoms of Spain. Western Europe witnessed in the 12th and 13th century a growth of stronger royal administration and general acceptance that hereditary monarchy was an unavoidable part of the political life of the great magnates, hitherto content to turn their backs on the crown. It's a good part to pause on. So we've got the Pope's curbing influence of the German empires and keeping the Holy Roman Empire from becoming as much of a powerhouse it had been but unsuccessful in containing the ambitions of the kings in France, England, and Spain. All major players that we're going to see coming up in this book. In every part of Europe, public order was precariously preserved, and even under strong kings like Edward I of England or Philip IV of France, banditry and ineffective judgment could make their whole reigns miserable for years at a time. At the end of the 13th century, the towns of Europe had become important, as observed above. In monarchies, the Burgess had in fact, had in effect, become identified with the Third Estate, especially in the representative assemblies, which by then were a feature of monarchical administration. In certain parts of Europe, the town had gained more recognition as a source of royal finance. Let's pause with Europe in the 14th and 15th century there, now that we've gotten a bit of a picture of the landscape. We can see that times are at a period of flux. Some kingdoms are waning, some kingdoms are waxing. We find that there's a period of economic change. While many people are still generalists and supplant their income by many different things, the idea of specializations is coming into the fold and some countries' economies are even starting to specialize in how they're operating. Towns are beginning to attract specialists who can take advantage of geological and geographical 
benefits that give their skill set even more value to then push into the rest of the European market. And as commerce flows, so does talk and diplomacy. Let's go ahead and read the next chapter of the Chronicle so we can get a bit of an introduction to one of the first characters we're going to be dealing with. Chapter 3. Here the matter speaketh of some of the predecessors of the King Edward of England. First, the better to enter into the matter of this honourable and pleasant history of the noble King Edward of England, who was crowned at London, the year of our Lord God, M-C-C-X-X-V-I, on Christmas Day, living the King his father and the Queen his noble mother. It is certain that the opinion of Englishmen most commonly was as then, and oft times it was seen in England after the time of King Arthur, how that between two valiant kings of England there was most commonly one between them of less, sufficiently both of wit and of prowess, and with this right well apparent by the same King Edward III, for his grandfather, called the good King Edward I, was right vigilant, sage, wise, and hardy, adventurous and fortunate in all feats of war, and had much ado against the Scots, and conquered them three or four times, for the Scots could never have victory nor endure against him. And after his decree, his son of his first wife, who was a father to the said good King Edward III, was crowned king and called Edward II, who resembled nothing to his father in wit nor prowess, but governed and kept his realm right wildly, and ruled himself by sinister counsel of certain persons, whereby at length he had no profit nor land, as you shall hear after. For anon after he was crowned, Robert Bruce, King of Scotland, who had often before given much ado to the said good King Edward I, conquered again all Scotland, and brent and wasted a great part of the realm of England a four or five days' journey within the realm at two times, and discomfited the king and all the barons of England at a place in Scotland called Stirling, by battle arranged the day of St. John Baptiste, in the seventh year of the reign of the same King Edward, in the year of our Lord M-C-C-C-X-I-V. The chase of this discomfiture ended two days and two nights, and the king of England went with a small company to London, and on Midlet on Sunday, in the year of our Lord, M-C-C-X-V-I, the Scots won again in the city of Berwick by treason. But because this is no part of our matter, I will leave speaking thereof. That's a lead into what we're going to be looking at next week, where we have a look into some more of the history of the kings of England as we lead into the story which will begin proper with King Edward III, who begins the Hundred Years' War. We will be discussing a little bit the fact that Edward I was widely regarded as a successful king. Edward II was, as you may have noticed, quite poorly regarded in this novel, and is largely poorly regarded by history. And that Edward III is then a return to form as a chivalrous and upstanding person who lives well by the virtues of his time. He's regarded at his time as being quite a good king, and we're going to learn about that as we move on. That's probably everything we have time for this week, though. I hope you're enjoying this weekly session, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week for more Chronicles of the Hundred Years' War. <laughs>